Now, as we continue in John chapter 10, uh, verses 22 through 42 this week, uh, last week in verses 1 through 21, we learn that Jesus is the door of the sheepfold and the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And then, remember, he had and has the authority to raise it up again. Christ possesses the authority to raise his own life. Great news. That is great news. We also learn Jesus calls his own sheep individually by name and leads them out to an abundant and eternal life. Also great news. And now this week, uh, today, Jesus is about to be surrounded. He's going to be surrounded by a pack of wolves or false shepherds or someone else's sheep depending on which sheepfold analogy you want to use. And we know they are someone else's sheep because they do not hear the good shepherd's voice and they have chosen to reject Jesus as their Christ and Savior. We know they are also false teachers, false shepherds, because they led the sheep in the sheepfold, that is Israel, away from the truth of God's word and are trying to point people away from Jesus as their Messiah. We also know that these men are wolves because they desired to kill and destroy, meaning to use these sheep to feed, to feed their own pride and their own reputation. They were not interacting with these sheep or any sheep to give life, but to take life for themselves. So let's carry on with these thoughts into the second half of John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Uh, The Feast of Dedication was what you might hear more often today called the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. Okay, Hanukkah was not one of the festivals uh, prescribed for Israel in the Old Testament. It started during the period in between the end of the Old Testament and before the birth of Christ. Uh, So this was still a pretty new tradition, comparatively, amongst the Jewish people during Jesus' time and during his earthly ministry. However, it is true, it's kind of neat to think about, it is true that Jesus would have grown up celebrating Hanukkah. And now the reason Hanukkah became a time of celebration dates back to 164. That's, That's the time period that this happened, 164 B.C., of course, before Christ. And there was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a fun name to say. Not a fun guy. Antiochus Epiphanes, who decided it was time for the Jews to be fully integrated in every way into Greek culture and life. So in order to accomplish this, Antiochus used his power, his authority to destroy copies of the scriptures, to start working towards eliminating the the Old Testament scriptures and preventing the Jews from practicing their own faith. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing, of all things, a pig on the altar, which was against Jewish law. What did he care? He didn't believe in any ways, but he knew they did, and so he did it just to desecrate their temple in their eyes. And then, on top of that, erected a statue of Zeus right there in the most holy of places. He was truly trying to eliminate entirely Judaism as a faith. Okay? But he failed. Amen? (laughs) He failed. Like all evil in this world, it looks like it's succeeding until it doesn't. 
Christ has overcome. A priest named Mattathias, along with his sons, primarily a guy named Judas Maccabeus, maybe you've heard of the Maccabees, he led a revolt against Antiochus, and after about four years of what some people call guerrilla warfare, they won. Jerusalem was recaptured, the false gods and altars were all cleaned out, and worship of the Lord was restored. This is the reason the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. This sounds wonderful, right? And yet, isn't it sad that at the festival where Israel celebrates the preservation of their faith, their religious leaders are now going to continue to reject and attempt to execute the fulfillment of their law and faith, their promised Messiah. And now, every year, even up until 2019, this year as we celebrate uh, Christmas and the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, when the Jews celebrate their freedom to worship God, they continue to reject the God who gave them that victory. End of all times, a week or two before we celebrate the birth of the Messiah. Verse 23. And Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. This, this winter is rainy season in Israel. It might have been a little chilly, rainy that day, so people would have gathered under this colonnade for protection from the weather. So, verse 24, the Jews gathered around him. They gathered around Jesus. And the idea here of their gathering is more like a surrounding. They had a plan. They had their own huddle. Brick! And they went around and they circled up around Jesus. They trapped him. So he had to listen and he had to respond. And they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? And this is so cool and sad. But in the Greek, this is a figure of speech. How long will you keep us in suspense? In the Greek, it's this. If it was translated word for word, how long will you take away our life? That's what they just said. How long will you take away our life? And it was a figure of speech, meaning something along the lines of, stop keeping us in suspense, okay? So that is a good translation, of course. I'm not smarter than they are. But isn't that an amazing figure of speech? How long will you take away our life? When... Jesus has just promised in the previous passage, up in verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And now two months later, Jews are asking, why are you taking away our life? Keeping them in suspense. The question, though, is how, how, how is Jesus keeping them in suspense? What do they want to know? And the next phrase in verse 24 answers this question. They say this, If you are the Christ, if you're really the Christ, tell us plainly, plainly or openly. Are you the Messiah or not? Just say it, yes or no. And what do you think? Are these people asking Jesus if he's the Messiah because they're hoping he is so they can believe? We've been there, done that, haven't we? We've seen what's what's happening here. Probably not seeing that they trapped him and all. And Jesus knows this. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. When did he tell them? Here's a for instance couple, John 5, 17 and following. Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They knew then what he was saying. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood this. They understood this. 
So I guess they're seeking to kill him. They understand what he's saying, right? John 8, verses 25 through 28, they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand what he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, in their lack of understanding, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, a name for the Messiah, then you will know that I am he. I am the Son of Man, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak as just as the Father taught me. And then in verse 58 of John 8, of course, is where Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. After which, they all picked up stones to kill him. They knew. They knew. These Jewish religious leaders are not asking Jesus to verify that he's the Messiah because they're still confused. They're not confused. They're egging him on. Say it again. Say it. Who are you, Jesus? And Jesus tells them. This is still in verse 25. Jesus says, I told you. Yes, he has. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And what about those works? We've been reminded of Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, his claims to deity and his role as the Christ in the last verses I read to you. But what about his works? Well, Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He healed the official's son in John 4. He heals a lame man in John 5. He fed 5,000 or maybe with all those who were with him, 15,000 or so in chapter 6. And then walked on water and zinged across the Sea of Galilee in the boat with all of his disciples to the shore of the other side. Remember that? He zinged across the sea or something like that. And remember the crowd asked when he got there, how did you get here? They knew it was not natural. And finally, in John 9, Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. And these are the miracles, the works of God that the Apostle John recorded for us. Not to exclude others that are recorded in other Gospels, or even the ones in this one after chapter 10. The works are all there. Jesus amazed the Jews with his teaching, his knowledge of the Scripture, His knowledge of man. Think of all the times when Jesus answered their questions before they asked them because he knew what was in their mind. And Jesus certainly amazed them with his miracles. So so why didn't they believe? And here in verse 26, Jesus reiterates what we learned last week from earlier in this chapter. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, in contrast, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. That is that personal knowledge, that loving knowledge relationally. I know them and they follow me. Remember Jesus taught us in the first half of this chapter that there is the sheepfold that is the nation of Israel And there is the sheepfold or sheepfolds that is or are the Gentile peoples. Jesus said this and promised this. And Jesus, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. He calls them individually by name. His sheep know their shepherd's voice when they hear it. And they follow him. So, the truth of the gospel, the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection goes out to the Jews. 
And every one of them who has been given to Christ by the Father hears the truth, rejoices in it, believes, and follows Jesus. And the truth of the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And that's most of us, if not all of us here today. Praise God. And every one of us Gentiles who belongs to him, every one of his sheep, hear the voice of their shepherd, and we follow him. And you might ask, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm one of his sheep? How can I know if I can be saved? Or if I prayed a prayer when I was five or six, or, or believed a message, how do I know that I'm saved? And again, I want to point us back, right back to Jesus' own words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In James 2, we receive this challenge. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. When we hear our shepherd's voice, when we're saved, we are made new in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Ephesians 4, we're commanded not to live anymore like unbelievers. Not like that anymore. Change happens. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Growth happens to believers. We're told to put off the old man, to change our thinking in Ephesians 4, in accordance with the truth of God's word, and then to put on that new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And remember, holiness is a word that means otherness. We will no longer simply be conformed to this world just like everybody else, but we will be continually conformed, changed to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. Not like everybody else. Otherness. Difference. There's change. There's difference. There's growth. In working with uh, youth, with teenagers over, over a decade or so, I've been asked a fair number of times about the assurance of salvation. How can I be sure I'm saved? And really, it's hard to convince someone they're saved if they refuse to repent and follow Jesus. And if you think about it, should we? Should we convince a person they're saved if they don't want to obey the Lord, whether they pray to prayer or not? If they don't want to get baptized, if they don't ever want to read their Bible, they don't want to go to church, they don't want to share the gospel, they don't want to say no to their flesh, the desires, and they'd rather fear man than fear God, should we tell that person, oh yeah, you're saved, if that's the evidence of their life? Are we serving that person well by convincing them that they're already saved? And I would say the answer to that is no. No. Even the last week, I encouraged one person who was really a little nervous about getting up in front of all of you. You know, it's, it's normal to be nervous about this. But when you obey the Lord and get baptized, you're showing everybody that you love Jesus more. That you want to obey Jesus more than you want to fear people. That's fruit. That's fruit. I don't think I should really try too hard, or we shouldn't really try too hard to convince a person that they're saved if they show no fruit, if they desire to show no fruit. It's tough. Show me your faith by your works. Show yourself your faith. And then the pushback. The pushback to that usually is, but... We're saved by grace, not by works. 
And to that we should all say, Amen. Right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And then the next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how we live. That's how we grow. Know this. Remember this. Those works... Walking like a follower of Jesus Christ is not the reason that we, or as some might say, the reason you stay saved. Those works aren't the reason you stay saved. Christian, you were saved by the grace of God. You are kept, held by the grace of God. There is no room for boasting. No room. Saved by grace. We change by grace. We are kept by grace. Verse 28 in John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And Jesus did say give, as in a gift. Eternal life is a gift, not a reward. Not a wage that we earn. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I give them eternal life and they will, what does it say? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Great and glorious, our God. Be astounded. He is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Guess what that means? It's time to get a little excited, okay? (laughs) These are some of the most wonderful truths. Truths that remind us of just how amazing the love and grace of God are and just how helpless we are. And therefore, just how thankful and full of worship we should be. First, Christian, you were given eternal life. Remember, your body will die, but you in Christ have already passed from death to life. Therefore, you will never taste, you will never see death, ever. Your body may die, get old, be pained. You might have a moment of an accident, or an, uh, some people call it an automobile purpose, and it happens, And but you, you go right on living. You will never see or taste death. And this is a gift to you from our loving God. Second, the Father gave you. The Father gifted you and me to Jesus. You're a gift. You have a gift of eternal life and you are a gift to Jesus. You've been given. You didn't get to become a part of the church because you researched everything out. You read all the fine print. You settled the differences on all the religious beliefs in your head and you came to an informed decision. How amazing. We're dumb sheep. We're sheep. Bah! We're sheep. Right? We are depraved sinners. There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one that understands. No one seeks after God. God took you and took me out of this flock of sheep that is the people of the world and then gifted us to Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. I am a child of God. You are a child of God to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Capital B, that's Jesus. This is not about my glory. This is his glorious grace. There is no room for boasting and every reason for praise. And do you know why this is such a wonderful thing? Why is this such a wonderful thing? Besides the fact that we would never have chosen God by our own will or our own volition or desire, why is this so wonderful? Since we know that God chose us and gifted us to Jesus, we also know and see from this passage in John 10, 28 and 29, that God, therefore, has a hold of you. God has a hold of me. I am not saved because I grabbed a hold of Jesus. Praise God. That might sound funky to you, but praise God. And this is why. Do you know what I would do? If it was all up to me grabbing a hold of Jesus, do you know what I would do? I would let go. I would let go. I would see something shiny flash by or a squirrel running across the backyard and I would let go. Something that would destroy me, something that would kill me and I would let go and I would chase it to my destruction. Have you sinned since you got saved? You have? Ugh. That is how we know we would let go. It's true of all of us. If we were responsible to grab onto and keep a hold on Christ, we all have already failed. But praise God, because that's not how it works. God has gifted you and me to Jesus, and Jesus and God the Father have their grip on you and on me. And no one can ever pluck us out of his hand. No one. Your salvation given to you by the grace of God is kept eternally secure by the grace and power and the choice of God. The choice of God. Brenton, can I use you for an illustration real quick? Uh, Thank you. You're so brave and bold. You've already been up there once. Say, come here, bud. This is, this is an imperfect illustration, but one that's helpful, okay? I have a quarter, the shiny quarter here. Now, I might give it to you. Don't spend it all in one place, okay? But here's what I want to do with this quarter, okay? I'm putting the quarter in my hand. Okay? It's there still. You see it? This isn't a magic trick, I promise, okay? All right. Take it. Well, no, I want you to try to take it. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Come on. You're being so nice. <laughs> Why can't you take it out of my hand? Yeah, did you have to grab a hold of it or do, do I have it? have it? I have it. And you're trying to take it, right? But I have it. 
how strong is my hand compared to God's? Way different. <laughs> Way different, like in the inferior sense of things, right? So, Brenton, God grabbed a hold of you, and no one can ever pluck you out of his hand. Isn't that awesome? Do you want this? Okay, go for it. <laughs> Quarters are not yet in the territory of pennies, right? We don't leave them on the ground yet as we walk by. Okay? Isn't that awesome? God has a hold of us. (laughs) And to all of us that believe, according to 1 Corinthians 1, this is the wisdom and power of God. But to them who do not believe, it is foolishness. That should sadden us. Which brings us back to these Jews who are surrounding Jesus. Remember, they're trapping Jesus to make him say something they can arrest and execute him for. And now in verse 30, he's going to give it to them. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Here is the unity of the Godhead. One God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christ has just plainly, as they had desired, plainly called himself God. And what did the Jews do? Verse 31. They picked up stones again to stone him. They knew what he meant. They got what they wanted, and they rejected their Messiah. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. So what was the official crime of which Jesus is being accused here. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy. And and the word blasphemy actually means speech that denigrates or defames, reviling, denigration, disrespect, slander. The Jews believed uh, Jesus was disrespecting and slandering Almighty God by claiming that he himself was... Almighty God. Of course, the problem is, He is. There was no disrespect, only truth. In fact, who was blaspheming in this situation? Who was slandering, defaming, and disrespecting God? It's these Jewish leaders. And Jesus answered them in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's, little g? In this seemingly confusing statement, Jesus is referring to uh, Psalm 82. And just so you know, the word law, where Jesus said, Is it not written in your law, it could refer loosely to the entire Old Testament. So Jesus didn't have an oops moment here. Okay, He's talking about the Old Testament. Verse 35, If, this is Jesus still, If he called them God's, little g, to whom the word of God, big G, came, And scripture cannot be broken, so it has to be true. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated, that word means set apart or dedicated, think the feast of dedication? Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? This might seem confusing, but here's here's the argument. In Psalm 82, Unjust judges in Israel are being rebuked because they've uh, been given this divine privilege to rightly decide between people in their conflicts, in crimes, and so on, but they were not judging justly. 
even though as judges they served a certain role that was representative of the Lord and his justice. Instead, they had abused their privilege and their lofty status for their own selfish gain, at, of course, the expense of others. And so the psalmist uses this word picture to make it clear when he says, and this is from Psalm 82, you are God's little g, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, a little reality check for them, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Stop abusing your power. You're just a human. Now the point that Jesus is making was this. Was this blasphemy for the word of God to use the word God, little g, to make this point about these corrupt judges? And the answer, of course, is no, that wasn't blasphemy. It's the word of God. You can't argue with that. Then, this argument goes from the weaker to the stronger. If that isn't blasphemy to call human judges little g gods, then certainly calling the actual son of the Most High, God, big G, isn't blasphemy. If that's okay, and that's true, and this is true, and it's not just these little g-gods, but big g-god, and I'm actually him, then why are you saying that I'm blaspheming? It's true. Those little g-gods were serving in a little g-god kind of a way. They hardly deserved the title, even though it was styled to portray a rebuke for them. But this big g-god was being exactly who he is. So what's the problem? It's almost as if Jesus could have said, are you Jews? And they would have said, of course we are. And then he could say, well, I'm God. So, that's probably what I should call myself if I'm being truthful and consistent. Does that make sense? Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, meaning my words, the things that I'm saying to you, then believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. The Jews asked Jesus to tell them plainly who he is and he's done it plainly. He's also shown them through his uh, words plainly that he's shown them through his miraculous works as well and works plainly. So now Jesus is saying, you are plainly rejecting the plain truth. Repent. Believe. And again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And remember, the cross wasn't the first time they tried to kill Jesus. He told them earlier in John 10, I laid down my, my life willingly. Jesus died on the cross because he was willing to give his life for ours. It was not taken from him against his will. And he didn't lay it down one second before it was God's timing. Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. Those conversations all over. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. They're thinking back to the ministry of John the Baptist. He was just preaching the coming uh, kingdom, the coming Messiah. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, know this. God sent his Son into this world in love. There is no way that we could pay the penalty of our own sin. There is no way that we could make it right with him. But Christ, living a perfect and sinless life, deserving no punishment whatsoever, never deserving death, willingly gave his life. He laid his life down for the sheep. And he died on the cross in our place. And God's wrath against my sin, God's wrath against your sin, was poured out in full on Christ. And whoever calls in the name of the Lord, do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died in your place? Then whoever calls on the name of the Lord, on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. If you've never put your faith in Christ, please, having heard the gospel today, repent. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, repent and believe. And if you believe, you are his sheep who heard his voice, and let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And Christians, rejoice. Rejoice. God has grabbed a hold of you, and no one can ever pluck you out of his hand. What I said to Brenton earlier, we could have said to every one of you, right? And you could say to me, God has a hold of you, and no one can ever pluck you out of his hand. You have eternal life. You have it. You're not going to get it. You have it. It's yours. So let's continue to be amazed by the glorious power and grace of God. Full, rightly so, full of thanks and appreciation in our hearts. And then, of course, therefore, what's in our hearts is going to flow out of our mouths with praise on our lips. And let's follow Jesus together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your wonderful grace. We thank you for your kindness to us, your great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for Christ's willingness to die in our place for his shed blood. We thank you that, Lord, all of your wrath against my sin, against our sin, which we far too often think is not as big as it is. Because we don't think highly enough of you and we think too highly of ourselves far too often. God, all of the wrath that we deserve was poured out on Christ. God, we thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you that you have grabbed a hold of us. We thank you that our salvation is eternally secure. We thank you for the grace that you give us to continue to change and be conformed into the image of Christ. The promise that you've made, that the work that you began in us, you will be faithful to complete. And God, we thank you that in this truth and in this life and in this growth, even in the midst of a world full of trials and tribulations, there is peace that passes understanding and there is joy in following Jesus Christ. God, may we pursue the joy of the Lord in this day and in this week for our good, for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.